right, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and welcome to our show. This is our uh, second actual show of our uh, 30th anniversary uh, week, I guess, although it's all the same to me, uh, which means our uh, next callers will be our first 30th anniversary callers. So let's just get right to them. And in Naperville, Illinois, Tim. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hi, Greg. Hey. How are you? Good. Hey, by the way, there is a big church in Naperville that I have taught at twice. It's a big, giant thing with a big stage and really big worship group and everything. Do you have any idea what the name of that church is? Um, well, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I've actually seen you speak there twice, and it's actually in St. Charles. It's called uh, Christ Community Church. Okay. That's, I think you're right. Christ yeah. Community. Okay. Yeah. And I have spoken there twice. And uh, do you remember one time when I was there, did they have an artist that did some really amazing thing with sand and then it's projected up on a screen? Does that ring a bell to you? Because uh, I thought I there was a thing yeah. there. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember that part. Okay, I think it was St. Charles and Christ Community, and and there was some question. They actually did a little uh, caricature of me that they had sitting up. Yeah. Okay. There we go. All right. We didn't. We have a we have a picture of that, but we didn't know where it came from. I knew in general, but I didn't know specifically. And thank you. I can't believe it, Tim. You you gave me the answer. Christ Community (laughs) Church. Amy, could you make a note of that? Christ Christ Community Church in St. Charles, Illinois. That's where yeah. that visage came, that, that effigy or whatever they made of me. Uh, I think that, uh, like, Mark Middleberg also was part of that series, and they made one for him, too. There was another one. I can't yeah. remember who it was. But, uh, yeah, and, the, the other, yeah that, that was exactly where that was. Okay, great. Bingo. We pinpointed it. Oh, super. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you, Tim. What's on your mind? Okay, so I ran across this uh, challenge online on a discussion, uh-huh. and I, I'll just read it to you, and then you can respond. Okay. So the person says, uh, quote, here's a legitimate question for Christians. Who told you you need someone to save you? Why do you feel that way? If in any other relationship someone told you that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try— you'll still never be enough, and you need them to save you, you would hopefully run away from that. Um, After leaving Christianity, I'm not going to lie, from the outside looking in, it appears to me that Christianity is one of the most successful mind control organizations of all time. (laughs) Unquote. (laughs) All right, I'll tell you why I'm chuckling. Here's a guy that just got up and left. Apparently his mind wasn't being controlled. There, we right. just did a conference. We just did a conference with, uh, you know, six six realities uh, in the season. We just ended uh, just la- weekend before last now, and uh, it was about deconstruction and deconversion. And we're hearing from all these people who have deconstructed their faith and they de- deconverted. Wait a minute! I, I thought all these people are brainwashed and mind controlled. How is it that they so easily walk away? You know, right. yeah. Good so point. there are lots and lots of people who apostatize or leave the faith. You can call it whatever you want. So I, I think the mind control language is a bit strong. Um, okay. But if if one tells you here is the way it is, 
here is the here is the way reality is structured. So we have a, a story of reality that we get from Christianity that includes the uh, uh, nature of human sin, the nature of human guilt, and the solution to that, which is forgiveness. Okay, then you have a competing story, and the competing story uh, says there is no guilt, and therefore there is no need for forgiveness, and there is no God telling you what to do. Okay, so yeah. why is the first story? called mind control, but the second story is not mind control. Okay, there's right. a question I have, all right? Well, the, I know the reason, because the second story that is not mind control is the questioner's own story. And they yeah. think, they, well, they, they're holding their view on their own, not because they've been mind controlled. Now, I have, no question, I have no doubt that there are people who indoctrinate, and that's probably a better word to use, because I actually don't think mind control, uh, or certainly brainwashing, even exists. You know, there's no such thing as brainwashing. They tried that. It didn't work. But you yeah. certainly, you can, unless people are using that word in a very flimsy fashion, to, as a synonym for indoctrination. But indoctrination, people who are indoctrinated one way can by examining the truth claims and the alternate evidence, believe something else and change their views. It happens all the time and in both directions. So um, my question would be, why do you call one the mind control, one, one claim about reality, and then another claim about reality, which, by the way, is much more appealing, Right. Yeah. Here you're indoctrinating people, you're mind control, you're telling them they're fallen. Well, wait a minute, why would anybody want to believe that? You're telling them they're not. Which one is more appealing? I'm not asking which one is more true, I'm just asking which one is more appealing. Which would be the one that people would naturally tend to gravitate towards if somebody was promoting it? Well, they would naturally gravitate towards the one who says, no, there is no sin, there is no guilt, you don't need to be saved. And this is why multitudes have gravitated for that. So it, it's, hard, it, it's hard to buy the notion that people are being mind-controlled by being told, told something they do not like when they have an option to believe something that is much more appealing. Okay? So yeah. I, I don't understand mind control. Now, you might say, well, it's indoctrination that's only—they're only getting one side. Well, that certainly isn't true in this country, all right? If you're talking about American Christians, that isn't true. All they have to do is t flip the TV on, and, uh, you know, and everybody watches TV, lots of it, and they're going to get another view that is constantly fed to them. So it isn't like th this is a compound where Christians are isolated and fed this falsehood, okay? If somebody told me, and this was the illustration he gave, in any other relationship, if you were told that, uh, that you, were, you were lost and you, you needed to be saved by this individual, you'd walk away. Sure, I, I, presumably, unless maybe, unless that individual was a doctor, who was an oncologist and he did just done a close examination of your body and said, unless you believe what I tell you and do what I tell you to do as an antidote, you're going to die. That kind of situation happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a, and medicine is an example of that. So the real question is whether the assessment is accurate. 
I, I, I don't, I think this mind control language is, is rhetoric. The fact is people walk away all the time, you know, and they don't seem to be controlled by it. Certainly not this questioner who used to be a, some kind of Christian, this challenger. And, um, and what they walk away from, too, seems to be much more individually appealing than what Christianity has offered. So why is that people are staying with Christianity? And I think the reason, one reason they do is because the claim makes sense to them. Now, uh, probably 15 years ago, I lectured at Cal, Berkeley, and uh, Friday night I talked about relativism, just doing a philosophical assessment of moral relativism. I came to the conclusion by making my case that moral relativism is, is false. There actually are objective, real moral obligations that apply to human beings. But we also know, guess what? We don't do those things that we're supposed to do. And by the way, this is pretty much a universal acknowledgement. Um, doesn't matter who you are, where you are, or when you lived, everybody knows something is wrong with the world. That's the problem of evil. And they also know that the thing that's wrong with the world is other human beings, largely, you know, of which they are uh, a member of that group. And so, therefore, something's wrong with them. And when I address this to the audience, that if relativism is false, then some form of moral realism or moral objectivism is true, that explains our feelings about ourselves because we don't we don't, uh, we don't, um, what's the word? We don't match up, or we don't, uh, um, now I'm lost the word, but we don't measure up. That's what I was after. We don't measure right. up. The fact that we don't measure up, everyone is aware of. No religious person has to tell you that. And this is why we feel guilt. And this is what I was talking to the group about. Actually, they told me, I didn't tell them. What is the name that we use to describe the feeling we have of this of the, of the fact that we don't measure up. Guilt, guilt, guilt. So people say, yeah, guilt. That's right. We feel guilty. Why? Th this is universal. No one has to, no religious person has to tell you this. What you have to be told is by a non-religious person that you are guilty. You do not have to be told by a religious person. Wait, oh, did I say that? You have to be told by a non-religious person that you're not guilty. You do yeah. not have to be told by a religious person that you are guilty. The natural framework, frame of mind people have is that they are guilty, and that's why they feel guilt. You feel guilty because you are guilty. Okay, so um, it isn't like people have to be brainwashed to think they have failed morally in some sense. Okay, so uh, I don't, I, that makes no sense to me. I think when people are appealed to by Christianity— uh, based on moral guilt. They are not being talked into feeling guilty, but rather the Christian is speaking to something the other person is already aware of. You already know this. And here I was at Cal, for goodness sake. Berserkly, right? And, yeah. and people are nodding their heads. And I said, the answer to guilt is not denial. That's what the atheist in this... In this uh, um, thing you're referring to here is that's what the atheist is offering denial. Okay, the answer to guilt is forgiveness. So if you feel guilty and you're aware that you ought to be punished for something you did wrong, 
and it might be a different list of things by one person than the Christian person. Nevertheless, I'm not even talking to the category of wrong things. I'm just talking about the awareness of doing something that's actually wrong, objectively wrong. That's all I'm talking about. And uh, we don't even have to fill in the blanks as to what is sin and what isn't sin. We all know that some things are sin, and we've done them. Now what? Now we're guilty. Okay, now what? And what the Christian says is, forgiveness is available to you. Are you interested in a pardon? That's all we're saying. It doesn't sound like mind control. We're dealing with something that the person is already aware that they need. Forgiveness. And we're offering that to them, free of charge. But where's the mind control? Yeah. I, I, it, it's, it's, uh, and you know as well as I do that people are not, like, prone to believe what we have to say. They're not going to accept the package. Even though they know they're guilty, they're not prone to say, okay, let me join up. I'm going to join up your group. No, they resist it. We understand why. But it isn't like you have all of these poor people who can't think for themselves, and they're mindlessly falling into this, this, this mind control trap that tells them they need to believe things they don't want to believe anyway the way is being offered to them. They know they're guilty, but they, it's much more, it's much better, more satisfying to say, you're not really guilty. Culture just put that on you. Christian put that on you. You're just fine. Live your truth. Okay, that's much more appealing, the relativist message. Yeah. You see that, the, that, Well, <laughs> that's what I was thinking, is that you could almost flip this around and say it's the world that's brainwashing or, you know, mind-controlling people into believing, telling them everything they want to hear, and you're good enough, you don't need, a, you don't need to be saved, there's nothing wrong with you. Sure. You know, you're a good person, um, all of that kind of stuff, and tell them what they want to hear. And Exactly. It's exactly know. my point. But I wouldn't use mind control and words, and I wouldn't use brainwash. I would just use indoctrination. Yeah. Why, isn't, why doesn't the same charge apply to the world, for one? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, because we're not doing that. Wait a minute. You're just saying that this thing that Christianity claims about the individual is not true that the individual is not guilty and does not need forgiveness. Now, that's a, that is a very strong point of view, and it is very appealing. People are going to be drawn to that because it's appealing. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I'm not faulting them for doing that, if that's what they believe. But now they're calling this other message that is not attractive and appealing as a mind control thing when people reject it all the time, and even people who are grown up with it walk away from it. Pretty lousy mind control. (laughs) But the real question is, is the view true? Are we guilty? And I think when people stop and pause and think, and this is what I was addressing when I was talking to the group um, in Berkeley, when they stop and think about it, they realize, you know what? I do feel guilty. And maybe I feel guilty because I am guilty. Because when I think about it, I've done some things that aren't right. Uh-huh. So that isn't mind control. That's a, that is a sober self-assessment that seems to match 
up with the claims of Christianity about reality. And if the claim about reality matches up to reality, that is the classic definition of truth. Now the question is, what do you do about it? That's it. So what do you do? Now you are guilty. Now what? If you're guilty before a lawmaker for breaking the law, you're in the dock. This is not good news, because now the gavel's going to fall. Are you interested in a pardon? The pardon is available. That's it. In fact, that's the way I communicate it, even to secular audiences, just the way I did. I notice I'm just—I don't have a lot of religious mumbo-jumbo in there. I'm just saying it the way it is. Right. So that would be my response. Make sense? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Good. All right, Tim in Naperville, thanks for the help with St. Charles, uh, the Christ Community Church in St. Charles. That was great. Yeah, great. Thanks for your help, Greg. All right, buddy. Bye-bye now. All right. All right, let's take. Uh, I'm looking. We got some people stacking up here. Let's just go to uh, Leland in Goodyear, Arizona, and we've talked to Leland uh, recently, I think, because you're right there by where Robbie Lashwood lives. So, oh, I got to push your button. Wait a minute, <laughs> this doesn't happen by magic. All right, Leland in Goodyear, yeah. welcome back to the show. You are the same person yeah, we yeah. talked to before, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, you got to push my buttons to find that out. Though. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've only um, been doing this for 33 years, so, uh, <laughs> all right, what's yeah. up? Um, recently I had a discussion with uh, who I, someone who I believe is is a sister in Christ, does, does believe that uh, she can only be saved by the blood of Christ, and is, believes in all the essentials of the faith. Um, but uh, she... Also, what did I, I offered her a book, uh, Victor Frankel's uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. And her response was, oh, no, I don't read those books because I don't think that really happened to the Jews. And, wait, 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 uh, wait, let me, wait. Let me just be clear. She does, she's a Holocaust denier. Is that what she, you say? Not just a Holocaust denier. Yeah, I know it goes also, further than that, but that's the first step right now. She she denies the Holocaust, really. Yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, she said, you know, her her dad was in Signal Corps. She's black, um, and he she says that he visited one of the camps and he didn't see very many Jews, just Poles and others. But so that wait wait wait. Her, he visited the camps when as a visitor to the camp that was now an archive, so to speak. No, no, but she's done that. But no, he was in Signal Corps. In World War II. Oh, and he didn't uh, see was, many Jews. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the 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 um, the, there were lots of people that were non-Jews that were in camps. There were six that, million I, Jews I, that died, but six million Gentiles died too. Yeah, I, I told her I, I used that approach too, but she doesn't think uh, very many Jews died in the camps at all. Okay. Well, um, so let me let me ask another question though. Um, there were six death camps. Okay, so before. Yeah. Majdanek, Auschwitz, uh, I, I forget the other three, Chelmo, and there were six of them. And those were dedicated to to destroying or eliminating the Jews. Uh, the other camps, they weren't so dedicated, though they had a lot of Jews in them, but they also had a lot of Gentiles. So a lot depends on which camp you go. But I, I actually yeah. am still—my dad was in the Signal Corps and didn't see so many Jews in the camp he went to. Therefore, six yeah, million Jews no. did not die in the in the camps? Yeah, uh, I didn't mention to her, you know. That okay, I just want to be clear camp, on her thinking. He, he visited, but, yeah, she, she's, she's there, but— uh, it also came out 
um, that uh, part of the reason she, she thinks uh, she she thinks there was a big propaganda thing, and she th- in fact she thinks that uh, the Jews are not the descendants of the Israelites. Okay, she thinks black Israelites people are were black. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so a, a couple questions I had is, um, you know, do you do you agree with me that you know if she has However problematic this view is, that if she has the other, you know, the essentials of the other essentials of the faith, that uh, at least she is saved. Yeah, well, um, what she believes about Jesus matters more than what she believes about the diaspora Jews. Correct. Okay. However, <laughs> I'm just kind of wondering if this is not kind of a dangerous view uh, to be having in your church, because, uh, I mean, everything from— I. Is it a misapplication of Scripture for me to quote uh, where it says that God basically said He will bless the people who bless His people, the Jews, and He will curse those who curse them? Well, you know, I think, well, well that's what a... that, that's of course that's the Abrahamic covenant. There's a detail there, and so then there is an applicational question: Who are the Jews in view there? Those direct descendants of Abraham, that's Isaac, what and Jacob, I'm <laughs> and and if and if they are not th- those Jews that we think of as Jews, but are actually black people, well, then there is an applicational concern. Um, but uh, I mean, this. Uh, so let me let me first things first. Uh, like I said, a person's salvation is dependent on what they believe about Jesus, not what they believe about the nature of the diaspora Jews, first of all. Okay. okay. Um, secondly, this idea—good. Um, this idea is called—I think it's called—well, I don't even know what it's called. Maybe Amy knows. But that there, it has gained popularity, and some of these groups are quite yeah. vigorous, all right? Um, everything that I know about this doctrine is that it, 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 it let me put it this way, there's nothing that commends this doctrine to me. There's a long history of the Jews being separated from Israel, diaspora spread around the country, and, the, and then having synagogues. You can track this through history. Okay, this is not dif- difficult, all right? That was my position. <laughs> and it is also not dif- but but it is also not difficult to make the case that millions of Jews died in the Holocaust. Okay, Agreed. and all I've been to two camps. I've been to Auschwitz and Majdanek, two of the six that were extermination camps. Okay, and uh, and that was enough for me. In fact, right now at the Reagan Library, which is just you know maybe six miles from my house, they're having a uh, a whole thing about Auschwitz. You know, I want to go, but uh, it, it, for someone to say that the the Jews did not die well i i don't maybe like maybe this is a trick question okay maybe what she means is all of those people did get exterminated but there weren't many black people so therefore there weren't many jews no that's not what she meant <laughs> oh that, that's not her view no she believes oh. that that there weren't very many people that we would call jews and that who call themselves jews well, and, and the dying in the camps. Well, a, a vast, the vast majority of the population of Jews in Europe, just as a matter of demographics, so dis- disappeared. Where'd they go? Okay, so now what does this tell you about your friend? Um, well, I mean, that she's, she's she's definitely mistaken about this, but I mean, well, what it tells uh, me is that that this person is not 
dealing in a reasonable way with the facts, even no, as something is, uh, as straightforward as the Holocaust. Okay. Okay, but do you think uh, this would be, like I said, uh, any any problem with letting her continue to come to our church? Uh, you know, worrying about because, by the way, we rent from a church that is a. Uh, it's the uh, Maranatha, uh, Maranatha Ethiopian and and uh, Eritrean. Uh huh. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And she's not part of that. She's from Hawaii, and she's not she's not Ethiopian or anything like that. Right. Right. But, uh, but uh, I'm thinking, you know, now now we don't fellowship, you know, directly with them. We, you know, because oh, you mean I your church is a guest? It has a has a guest congregation. Of Ethiopians and Eritreans, right? No, no, no. Okay, I'm confused. No, we just rent space from them. That's what I meant. On Saturday, you, I think. I've oh, you rent. You, you're the guest. That's their church, and you guys rent space from them, right? Yes. Okay, but she doesn't go to their church. She goes to your church. Yeah, she's okay. just been visiting. She's going to go back to Hawaii sooner or later, but. No. Yeah, right. For the time being, right? Okay. Well, I don't think there's any problem with having her go to your church. I don't think any disciplinary. Yeah, okay. If that's her view. If she begins to campaign for her view, then I think you have to keep an eye on it and see if it's causing disruption. If it's causing okay. disruption, then you have a problem. I have no difficulty with her telling other people this is what she believes. And I don't think contrary views should be just silenced kind of out of the gate. Um, I mean, unless they're Aryans and they're you know Jehovah's Witnesses and LDS or whatever, <laughs> and then you've got yeah. now you've got to make the distinction with your group that these people are a different religion. But she's bringing in a, an odd kind of angle into her Christianity, and um, and this just keep an eye on it. And if it turns okay. out to be disruptive, that's when you'll have to address it. Just like someone I addressed in the last hour, you know, uh, if if uh, I can't remember the issue now, but if it's disruptive, you know, oh yeah, I remember that. And yeah. it seemed to have been in their case disruptive, and so this is where there's a problem. But I, you know, I I don't. Um, so that that's it. I, I'm not in a position to give okay. you a theological well, then, analysis of the this particular group, which strikes me as strange and I think as dangerous. And things I've been experienced regarding them is they're pretty aggressive, you know. Uh, with, yeah, she's not. So I think we're all right there. She I mean, she is she not to visit us. You know, she is aggressive yeah, she, in it. No. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. No. Yeah. Okay, and, but real, real, real quick. I mean, I, I don't know if you had more to say about. Yeah, that, go ahead. I, I just a uh, real quick question, uh, uh, completely off that subject. You know, uh, are you going guys going to post that sand painting of you so we can see it? Uh, or uh, the documentary? The, no, the sand painting that uh, from Grace or the uh, church they you know where you visited. They made a sand painting of you. Oh, that! Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that it wasn't okay. That. First of all, they did not make a sand painting of me. They made a caricature, stand-up caricature painting, okay? But I was okay. just asking, I remember that the sand painting was a little demonstration that happened during the oh, service, okay, artistic, okay. and I was just trying to make sure that it was the same church, because I thought I remembered that. But he gave, Well, are you going to post that thing so we can look at it? Uh, that's going to be posted somehow, because over this next year, our 30th year, uh, anniversary year, um, th there are plans to post different things in different places, but I don't have anything to do with that. I just know I okay. saw this representation, 
and I was asked, well, what church did I come from? Who is the artist so we can give proper credit? We know the okay. church now, at least, uh, Christ Community uh, uh, in St. Charles. But I'll get to see it, you know, and, and uh, yeah, see what yeah. a caricature of Greg Kokel. Yeah, it looks, it looks like me, kind of, in a caricature <laughs> okay. form. So they did, did a pretty right. good job, but I don't know where it's going to be posted. So just stay alert on our website okay. or whatever, and maybe you'll see it. All right, okay. partner. Thanks a lot, Greg, for being, you know. I've been. I don't know if I listened to your first broadcast, but uh, I've been listening to you. I'm pretty sure since at least '91 or '92. Wow. I don't know. Well, that's pretty close. So, I started in February of '90, and in '91 okay. or '92 oh, was not stand to reason. It was. Uh, it was yeah, called it was uh, it was Talk from the Heart, actually. Else and, oh, okay. Yes. All right. I, I remember listening to you on K Bright. Uh, yes, KBRT. Right. Uh, yeah. All uh, right. Sounds good, anyway. Leland. All right. Take care. God bless. All right. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate your call. All right. Let's go to break, and uh, we'll have more calls here on Stand to Reason when I get back. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with a confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. All right, that was a great conversation here. Let's see if we have some more. And uh, going to uh, New Jersey, Evan, welcome to the show. Hey, Greg, can you hear me? I can. I okay, can. <laughs> so I make sure. Yes, sir. So, to me, three comments, but it concerns the relationship between reason and, and scripture. Um, so let's say if, if the Bible, and I emphasize if, were to contradict the laws of reason, which one would take precedence? So, like for, for example, if the Bible were to say something that contradicted the, the law of non-contradiction, how would a, like a Christian wrap their mind around that? So some people I've seen say that the Trinity uh, violates that law by saying, you know, God is both God and not God, or the Father is both the Father and not the Father. And while I don't really believe it, and uh, that's true, I still think it's an important issue to address. Well, okay, um, I think uh, w- the, my general response is that this would be a false dichotomy. Because classically, in uh, in Christian 
approach to literature and literature i mean to scripture and to thought be, thinking and reason that there is not a contradiction there between them and if and and reason then is grounded in the mind of God. So the laws of reason, or whatever, however you want to characterize them, these are characteristic of God Himself. Right. And so God is not going to be able to make a square circle, right? Because that's yeah. a contradictory notion. Um, so if somebody is uh, arguing, though, that the Trinity is false because it violates the laws of reason, my question is going to be, which laws of reason does it does it uh, violate? And of course, the law of non-contradiction is what comes up. But in what sense is the Trinity properly understood contradictory? Well, you believe in one God, and then you believe in three gods, and I and the response is no. That's not the view. That's not the Trinity. The Trinity is one God with th- that subsists with three centers of consciousness within it. Each is the bear, shares the full nature of the one God, but they have three separate persons. So it's if if you understand the claim of the Trinity or the, the way the Trinity is characterized or defined as one God and three persons, there's no contradiction. Just like there isn't one family and three members of the family. Now that's not a parallel. That's not a a parallel with the Trinity, but it is a, just an attempt to show that sure. you can have one and three together in with no contradiction if the oneness is different than the threeness. Yeah, I get that. Um, so would you say that the general understanding would be that, since you know, from a theistic standpoint, all logic does ultimately derive from God. That if there were some sort of seemingly logically incoherent aspect in Christian theology, then the truth will eventually out that since since it's based in God and this is what God reveals, it, it does it will ultimately make sense that that maybe just human error is the reason why it seems incoherent. Well, that might that would be one way to go. Maybe we're misunderstanding something. Maybe there's a mystery here that uh, I mean classically. Christian thinkers will not say that it is a contradiction, but there's an element of this that we don't understand. I think the hypostatic union, the idea that that uh, God becomes man in the person of Jesus, and you have the union of two natures under the one person of the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, I think that is really weird. I do not think it's contradictory, but I do think it, 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 it in a certain sense, it defies our ability to understand everything that's going on. So if somebody thinks that there is a teaching of Scripture that in fact defies rationality, mm-hmm. then uh, and, and let's just let's just um, stipulate that in fact it does. Well, yeah. then they are misunderstanding the Scripture. Then they're misunderstanding. It's similar to what I just described about the Trinity. People who characterize the Trinity in a contradictory way are not characterizing the Trinity in a biblical way. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I'd be interested to see the what where is the contradiction that people think is resident in certain theology. Right. Uh, the 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 claim of course for the Trinity at being contradictory this this comes up with from people who don't understand the Trinity. Yeah. I actually yeah. talk about this and deal with it in uh, Street Smarts, because I'm 
I'm dealing in one chapter, actually two chapters, with the person of Jesus, who he was and what he did, the person and work of Christ. These are two different categories where there are challenges that are presented, and I talk about dealing with the challenge and how to engage in dialogue to resolve the issue when you're talking with somebody else. So, um, yeah, if the Bible seems contradictory, then you're probably not understanding the Bible. That would be my simple response. That makes sense, because, you know, before asking the question, I pretty much thought the same thing would be the response, that, you know, from a lay perspective, the Trinity does seem a bit confusing, you know, traditionally it's been referred to as a as a mystery, you know, you find that language in, like, yeah. Catholic liter- literature, but when you do go look deep into it, you realize people have been, you know, bouncing this idea around for millennia, essentially, yeah. and they've... Uh, come up with some very interesting explanations for it that, of course, do make it uh, seem ultimately logically coherent. Right. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, what I think what one has to show is if they are making the claim of incoherence, they have to demonstrate the incoherence. Right. Um, uh, you can you can have a, a very you can have a mystery that is not guilty of incoherence just because it's mysterious and we can't plumb mm-hmm. the depths or understand doesn't mean it's incoherent. That is, it's contradictory. We have to look at at the at the concepts themselves and how they're characterized. So, right. okay, fair enough. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you very okay. much. Okay, uh, you're welcome, Evan. And uh, let's see, did we just go to a break, or do we need a break? Keep going. Okay. Oh, that's easy for you to say, Kyle. All right, you're not behind the. Mo- All right, if you say so. Should we go to a uh, number five? There. Is that what's next? That okay with you? I'm trying to make you do some of the heavy lifting, Derek, or Kyle, rather. Okay. I can't see you. All I can see is your hat. Can you give me a thumbs up? How about number five? Is that all right? Do I have your... Okay. <laughs> oh, that would be Matt or Matthew in Santa Clara, California. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Greg. Hey. How are you? Good. Thank you. Celebrating today, so to speak. <laughs> Maybe I'll have a cigar. That would be great. Well, I shouldn't say that on the air. Okay. Never mind. I'm going <laughs> to... We'll see what happens um, later tonight. But good to talk to you. What's on your mind? Social justice, right? Right. Um, well, I go to the Jesuit University up here in Santa Clara, and um, I am currently taking a religion course. And I was recently talking to my professor uh, about your article, The Legend of right. the Social Justice Jesus. Right. And um, he made the argument that we can't know whether or not Jesus would support social justice in the way that we understand it, right? Uh, because social justice as we understand it now was not a concept uh, when Jesus was around. And Correct. I didn't know how or whether I should respond to that. All um, right. Um, let's, let's see. I'm just going to try to think of a parallel. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, okay, I'm not, I probably am not going to do this very good because something doesn't jump right into my mind at once. Sometimes the muse is there and bingo, I got this great thing that by parallel. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, the, the point that he's making is not relevant. Okay. Simply because we have some kind of cultural activity now which activity was not performed then. And again, I'm, I'm trying to think about 
like uh, that's what I was trying to think of parallel. Uh, we don't have. Um, uh, oh, I can't. It just it doesn't mean that Jesus would not. We don't know enough about Jesus' ethics and view of reality to know what he might think of this situation now. Okay. That, that's that, that's a kind of a way of responding. That I, don't, I don't know that's even relevant. But here is the deal, and this goes back to the article proper, the legend of the social justice Jesus. The question is, what did Jesus come to do? And the kind and what people say is, what Jesus came to do was to help the poor and the oppressed and uh, and the marginalized in society. Okay? Now, there are particular ways that helping the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized in society are done today that would not have been done before. Uh, Certain types of welfare or food stamps. Let's just say food stamps. He didn't have food stamps then. Okay? We have food stamps now. Right. Okay, well, that's not relevant to the broader question. When people—and keep in mind, and you know this from reading the article, The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus, I am responding to claims that people are making about what Jesus was all about. So to say, well, he didn't have the social justice then like we have now, so we don't know what he would have thought, that is an argument against my critics. My critics saying, this is what Jesus came to do, you know, help the poor, the, the marginalized, and the oppressed and uh, in in the best way he knew how, and we know different ways to do that now. Well, if Jesus didn't know anything about that, well, then he couldn't have been about that. <laughs> right? And my, my point is that when we look at the things that Jesus said, and those who are in a position of authority regarding understanding his purpose and his mission, like angels, or people who are prophesying and stuff regarding Jesus, especially in the birth narratives, or John the Baptist, for example, okay, we, we know what they said about what Jesus' purpose was, and we know what Jesus said. That's all I'm doing, okay? What, there, I hear a little clickety-clacking in the background. I don't know if you're in control of that or not, but it'd be better if we didn't have that, if you can control that. Sorry, I was... Okay. Sorry, I was taking notes. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, you're probably typing. Clackety clack clack yeah. clack. Oh, you sound like Derek. Derek is doing that. <laughs> what does it sound? Uh, he's clackety clack clack clacking in the other room, and I always complain. I said, "Sounds like you're. What do I sound like you're doing? Uh, what are these? He's doing something. He sounds like he's doing something, like making. Sh- huh? Oh, he's spray painting. That's what his. It sounds like he's shaking the bottle of spray paint on the wall. You know, that's what it is. Okay, that's okay. Well, if you're typing, I'll tell you what. Listen to the recording when it comes out in a couple of days, and then clickety clack them. For listen okay. to me for the like okay. So the first point I'm making is we don't know what Jesus would have thought of social justice because what we have now is not what he had then. Okay, if that's true, then Jesus could not have been a social justice warrior in the sense that we think now. In other words, my point in the article is accurate. It's a legend that Jesus was a social justice warrior. Okay, taking his—you get that point. Okay, so that's suicide tactic. That guy sinks his own boat. Oh, we don't know? Well, then you can't claim it. But we do know what Jesus said his purpose was. And he didn't say his purpose was to help the 
the culturally oppressed, to help the financially poor, or to help those who have been marginalized. We know that he was willing to engage marginalized people that mm-hmm. others were not willing to engage. But he that doesn't mean he he campaigned for them and their circumstances. He did not. He was open to everybody, and he campaigned for something else. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. It is not the righteous who need me, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Those are just two examples. But I found every single one in the Gospels that, that said anything about why Jesus came, and that would be the authoritative spiritual voices like the angels or prophetic voices like Zechariah or John the Baptist or Anna or uh, the other guy there, you know, when Jesus was dedicated, whatever his name is, um, they all said something in particular, and they said the same thing that Jesus said. So it's clear from the corpus of the witness of the Gospels from both Jesus and others that he had a very peculiar mission that was nothing like the mission that people attribute to him now, that he was campaigning and championing the cause of the poor and the outcast and uh, the oppressed. He does use the word oppressed there, but Peter says he was freeing people who were oppressed by the devil. Okay? Right. And he never took on any of the, the, the circumstances of government or anything like that. Like, look at you guys, your government. He did go after hypocritical uh, Jewish leaders, but on moral grounds, not on behalf of the poor. And, uh, and and he had, most of the time when he talked about the poor, he was using his reference to the poor as a, as a springboard to teach something else. Look at that poor woman. She's giving the widow's right. might. She gave everything. She's giving more than these other people. Well, that, mm-hmm. that isn't campaigning for the poor. It's making a different spiritual point. Okay, a proportionality in giving, and hers was greater than the people who gave more. Um, uh, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. That's a whole different thing than who's, those who are poor. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Wait a minute, where did he gather up poor people, financially poor, and speak just to them? He spoke to everybody. He spoke in the hills. He spoke in synagogues. He spoke in the Temple Mount. He spoke everywhere to everybody not just to the financially poor. So it's clear there's nothing really about the life of Jesus that fits this model. Therefore, the person who makes this particular point, this professor, is it, it, it's irrelevant, the point he's making. There were a poor at that time, there were oppressed people, and the Old Testament has things to say about the poor, and since the poor are vulnerable, he says, don't oppress them. <laughs> They're easy to oppress by people with power. Don't do that. Oppression is wrong. Mm-hmm. That's the Old Testament. I'm not saying that means it's old. I mean, that's the voice of the Old Testament and prophets. That wasn't the voice of mm-hmm. Jesus. That wasn't what Jesus came to do. He came to do something else. That That's my whole point. And what I don't want to do is relegate Jesus to a social justice warrior of some sort, and therefore detract or, or diminish or destroy um, the, the, the actual reason that he said he came. And notice that in the Gospel of John, there is only one single solitary reference to the poor, and it's when Jesus says the poor 
you always have with you. That is, it was dismissive of the poor in comparison to something else, and that something else was him being anointed for burial. So right. it's all there, and uh, if people want to read the piece, it's on our website, The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus. So does that help you with the challenge? Yeah, that definitely helps. Okie dokie. Um, yes. All right, if you have the time. Well, I have I have another caller online here. I got uh, like eight more minutes to go, so I I need to go to the other right. caller. But hold Maybe on, uh, I'll put you on Thank hold you, because hold on just a minute. Don't go away. I think Amy wants to talk to you, so I'm going to try to put you on hold. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, you're welcome, brother. Yeah, that did that work? It did work. Okay, let's go to Carly in Augusta, Georgia. Carly, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks so much. You're um, welcome. Yeah, so uh, I just had a question about First Corinthians five eleven. Okay. Um, when it talks about how we are not even to eat with another brother who engages in Oh certain... yeah, yeah. Um, and I was wondering if that applies to like parents maybe not associating with their children who have maybe come out as gay or something like that. Okay. I'm speaking yeah. kind of generally for anonymity purposes of sure. someone that I know. Yeah, the, 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 right now, of course, there are lots of challenging circumstances, especially with the uh, the um, preponderance of, of of gay or same-sex relationships that we see flourishing in our culture and the promotion of them. And then you're going to get a lot of uh, Christian parents or family members um, who have family members that are now pursuing this direction. And what it says here in chapter 5, verse 11, this is for the other listeners. Uh, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with one. Uh, and, and, of course, he was just talking about sexual sin above there, and they were kind of going along with it, like they're being, why aren't you mourning instead of being so, in a quote-unquote, tolerant of that? And so the question then is, how does this apply now? And and your question in specific is somebody's daughter who claims to be a Christian and is a, in a same-sex relationship. Is that right? Yeah, they've just come out as, as gay, or um, but I don't know that they're in a relationship. But yeah, they've come out as gay. They're professing Christian um, but yeah, they've come out as gay. And so like, would the parent, how would the parent apply this verse? Okay. So just so I'm clear, their daughter has come out as gay. Is that what you said? Or as a lesbian? Correct. Okay. And she still claims to be a Christian. Correct. Okay, fine. I have no problem with that. I, Christopher Ewan is a close friend of mine, and Christopher is a Christian who has same-sex attraction, but he is living a godly, celibate life, just like uh, a a single person may have raging heterosexual attraction, but brings that under the lordship of Christ. That's what Christians do. So if your your friend, or the, the daughter in this case, is 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 Christian struggling with same-sex attraction and living a holy life uh, like Chris, Christopher Ewan? And he's written books about—in fact, he has a book. Doesn't Christopher have a book about uh, holy uh, holy living or something? Uh, uh, uh-huh. for, 
Holy Sexuality, is that it? Okay, yeah, his second book. His first one was about his own testimony out of a far country and his holy sexuality. You also have somebody like, uh, okay, Amy, is it Rosaria or Rosaria? Rosaria, oh, gosh. There's only about 10 ways to say that name, and I get it wrong every time. Rosaria Butterfield, Rosaria Butterfield, and she's written a number of books, but she also came out of a lesbian relationship, very aggressive, and and became a, a Christian. And I actually think she's she's married and with children now, so maybe there was some adjustment in her her own <clears throat> sexual attractions. Um, nevertheless, the point is her commitment, just like Christopher and a number of others, that as a follower of Christ, regardless of your sexual appetites, you're going to live a holy life. Now, right. if, if this is what the daughter's view is, then there's no problem. And, you, I mean, there's a challenge there, obviously, for her, and it's our job as, you know, friends and family members, what are to be encouraging and supporting to her. But she is not condemned simply in virtue of having same-sex attraction. It, uh-huh. it is the, the way we deal with our sinful impulses that's important. And right. So she—sorry, so she actually— I mean, to clarify earlier, is not, she's like a professing Christian, but she's not living a godly, like, she's not like, oh, I'm just struggling with same-sex attraction. She is like, this is okay. Like, homosexuality okay. is okay in God's eyes. Okay, so now, the, I well, then I have another verse that's important <laughs> for her, and it's in the very next chapter of the same book. It's in chapter 6, and I'm going to read this, and I'm going to read the, um, you know, a couple of verses here. Um, and uh, th- note that there's a mixture of sins that Paul is saying are inconsistent with being a member of the kingdom of God. But note the sexual sins. There's a bunch of—I'll read the whole thing. Verse 9, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. And it's interesting, the wording. Or do you not know? Wait a minute. People, Corinthians, don't you know this? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, well, who's that? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Now, that hits at home for a lot of young people right now. And I said this in a church environment last weekend. Here's what it says. This This is God's standard. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, notice it starts with the heterosexual sins sexually there, fornication, adultery, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, or synechoites is the Hebrew, is the Greek word there, men mm-hmm. betting men, men, you know, men betters, yeah. nor uh-huh. thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, uh-huh. if so, what this means to me in other words, the way I apply the fairly clear statement, unambiguous statement of Paul, is that if a person is openly living a homosexual life, they are not Christian. Right. Okay. And and therefore, they wouldn't be falling underneath this this criteria, you know, <clears throat> although Paul does say in chapter 5, any so-called brother— who is yeah. living like that. And uh, I think another factor that has to come into play here is the familial relationship. Uh, 
It's not just like some other brother in the church. It's a member of your own family. And, yeah. and, and, and at least I think that makes a difference. All right. So what you don't do is you don't say, okay, you're not a member of our family anymore because you're not living the way you're, you're supposed to as a Christian. Yeah. Um, my take on Paul's comments in First Corinthians 6, 9, uh, and 10 is that she's not a Christian, and it's evident by her lifestyle. Now, if okay. she wants to deny that, no, I really am a Christian. I love Jesus. Okay, then you follow him. Mm-hmm. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? But now, yeah. having, having said that, I mean, that's the theology. Working this out in relationship, in families especially, is sometimes very difficult. There's a tremendous hardship here for the parents that are involved, and you know, so it, you want to have a, a gentle touch trying to manage these things. So, uh, Carly, I, I, where, there's my music, so we're out. But does that help you? Yes, thank you so much. All right, Carly, I appreciate your call. That's it, friends, for Stand a Reason today. Greg Kokel here on our 30th anniversary shows, the last two this week. Give them heaven. <laughs> 